Welcome to Community Echoes on 93.1 CFIS-FM, Prince George's Community Radio Station, with your host, Phyllis Warren. And good afternoon. How is everyone today? I hope you're all fine. So I'm just going to give you um, what's going to happen here for the next month. For the next four weeks, we are focusing on the Métis and French-Canadian culture, with each show having two separate parts. And the last half hour, we have two editions of the French phone podcast but to start today's show I have Sheldon Clare here as a guest and we are going to discuss the history of the Métis and how it began and that began with Louis Riel. Hi Sheldon. Hi Phyllis. And how were we today? Well, in the royal sense, I suppose we're both fine. Yes, we are. <laughs> well, in, when we look at the Métis, I, I, I think the Métis go back a lot further than Louis Riel. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and there's really two distinct populations of Métis peoples. And they're those who were French in origin and yes. those who were usually Scottish, Irish, or otherwise British in origin, but mainly, I think, mainly Scottish. Yeah. And they, they, they spoke two different distinct dialects. I think it's Michif and and uh, the other one escapes me, but there were two separate dialects. One of them based on French words and and a Cree and a Cinnaboyne, and the other based on Scottish and the same combination. And those those two populations go back to the early days of the settlement of the Red River, right? Which which uh, goes well well be- before uh, Louis Riel, and it goes back to all the fur trade, the Hudson's Bay Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, which had very strict rules about people getting married and, and uh, getting together, except which were largely ignored by people because people being people, they're going to, you know, do what people do. Socialize. <laughs> Socialize, and, uh, yes. Hook up. In a family show, so we'll keep it clean. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Anyway, uh, that you start to see uh, distinctive populations emerge of the offspring of these liaisons between the French traders and the and the, uh, the the British traders, for one of a narrowing it down, the Scots and so on, and ha- you, you you see these these growth in these in, in these populations, and they start to become a significant political factor, right? Uh, especially after Confederation, and one of the key things that I think drives the Riel rebellions, the the Northwest Rebellion and the Riel Rebellion, is when the Hudson's Bay Company sold Rupert's Land. And when Rupert's Land gets sold, there's this gap of uncertainty as to what is who is the government and who's in charge and what's going on. Because it's supposed to have been returned to the British Crown when the Hudson's Bay Company gives up Rupert's Land. And yet there are all these people living in the Red River area mm-hmm. who were going, well, wait a minute, we didn't get any say in this. Uh, some of us think it might be good to join the United States. Some of us are keen on forming our own sort of autonomous collective. Some of us want to join Canada West. And there's, there's a fair bit of political discussion. I'm simplifying it a little bit there. Yes. But that's, that's the essence of it. And there were a number of leaders that emerged at the time. And Louis Riel was one of those leaders who, who, uh, was elected as a member of parliament a, a number of times and never took his seat. But he was a well-spoken young man. Uh, he was very fiery, extremely religious. Uh, yes. Uh, his, his faith was a very, very strong factor in everything he did. Uh, and 
if you look at his journals, which I've done, uh, which I found rather surprising, because one of the the big things that happens, uh, you know, there's the two rebellions, 1870, which uh, he has a lot of popular support, both in Canada East and in Canada West, what we now call uh, Quebec and Ontario, for the plight of the of the, the Métis people and then the issues over land. There was a fair bit of sympathy until the execution of Thomas Scott, the Orangeman. And he was he was a guy who'd been agitating. He was fairly anti-Métis. He was very uh, Protestant in his views, anti-Catholic. Yeah. And he was outspoken in many respects. Some say, some say he wasn't all that outspoken. Others say he was. And yet, Louis Riel made the decision to have him executed. And when that happened and it got published, and there were prints made of, you know, showing Louis Riel executing Thomas Scott. And when that happened, Louis Riel lost an awful lot of popular support, particularly in Canada West, what's now Ontario, and in the, in the Protestant community. And this led directly to the sending of a military, uh, uh, Expedition to put down this rebellion, and this was led by Garnet Wolseley, who later remembered the use of the bateaus and the boats that moved his troops, and he wanted to get Canadian boatmen to help the British horses in the Nile. And and when he was there, and it's it's a I think there were almost two hundred that went over later mm-hmm. to do that with Garnet Wolseley, but Louis Riel has always been a controversial figure. He is seen as the founder of Manitoba. He is seen as the leader and savior of the Métis people. Uh, after the failed 1870 rebellion, he was pretty much in exile. He fled to the United States. Yes. Uh, some of the some of the, uh, the the troops stayed for a while. There was some bad behavior, particularly by the uh, the rough and ready militia. And the British regulars were appalled at some of the things that were going on, the drinking and the carousing and so on. And uh, Anyway, that seemed to calm down for a while. And then 1885 comes around and you've got the construction of railroads. The, 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 the buffalo are extirpated on the plains. They're, yeah. When the, when the plains bison are gone, that really spells the end of a way of life for an awful lot of people. The Cree, the Assiniboine, and the, and the Metis as well. The, the making of pemmican was an important aspect of the trade. And this is one of the, the, the sticking points was who could make pemmican and who could sell it and what could you do with it? Because it was a great food source. It could be yeah. preserved for long periods of time. And it was a staple of the fur trade. And yet when you, if you, didn't control that food, it allowed free agents, so to speak, and especially Americans, to come up and be engaging in this territory and taking advantage of the trade. And who could sell the, the pemmican and who could do all of these things became an issue in court. And and the, in, in 1885, that became a stark example of this. And the court, although it found one way, <laughs> was told that it found the other way, and basically the decision was never enforced. And the rebellion broke out again because of land issues and and and, and people starting. To, there were surveyors. It was pretty obvious there were going to be large populations of people coming into the area and taking advantage of land grants. When issues for land for the Métis people who already lived there and had long histories there had not been dealt with in right. any, any adequate way. So Louis Riel is persuaded to come back from from the uh, United States, and he does. 
and he puts together a provisional government with Gabriel Dumont as his military commander. Gabriel Dumont, I think, is is largely someone who deserves a fair bit more attention. But uh, you know, you can you can look at all of those guys. Yes, uh, you know, sometimes a great leader needs a very strong team. Yes. And and I had heard that this is what he was able to do is build a good team that was honest and yeah and and he didn't initially start out as the leader he started out as the secretary uh, you know he was, but he was educated he had been going to be a priest is what right. he had started to be was going to be a priest and you know he he was a, a man who could read he could write he kept his his journal um. And I, I mean, he led a, a fairly strong team. And there's a picture that exists of Louis Riel and his cabinet. And you see the guys there. They're all guys. There's no women in, involved in this at this time, of, uh, which is the, the way it was in those yes, days. Yes, it was. And I, I, I put the picture up when I'm teaching my classes on this. And I say, have a look at these, the expressions on their faces. And they look cocky. Like the other you know, one fellow on the on the far right, and I can't remember his name, but he's got that big mustache as they all like to sport in those days, and he's he's got a sort of a casual pose, and he's sitting there, and he's got this look on his face, like, oh yeah, you want to mess with us? And that really was an attitude, I think, that was very strong in that team. And you got Louis Rail, who, who's trying to look a little bit more disciplined and focused. He's the guy <laughs> with the high collar and the tie, and. And then you've got uh, Gabriel Dumont in there, and he's he looks like what he is, as a, a skilled tactician and a brawler. Right. Yes. And you see, that's the most interesting thing of how they started this movement. You know, and today we have certain rights because of that movement starting, you it, know. Absolutely. Um, and it's quite interesting how when he was in the states that he ended up marrying and and becoming home coming home with yeah he, he meant married a young metis woman yes you know so that's quite interesting that you leave your home country and you go off and you marry and then you come back and you become a great leader for other people who you know well exactly and he 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 had a bit of a thing though if you like and like Mackenzie King the Canadian prime minister for the 20s and World War II and a bit of the 30s uh, there are some things about him that are a little bit disconcerting too because when you start to put a person on a pedestal very quickly you find that there are things about the pedestal that aren't really holding up <laughs> and I mean Louis Riel has that same sort of a, a problem in his history because I, I mean one of the things that was a big issue at his trial and his trial was an extremely hot thing in Winnipeg is that he fired his lawyer. Now, he had a lawyer defending him because the, the crime for treason, which is what he was charged with, was was the death penalty. Uh-huh. And Middleton, among others, the, the, Canadian, the, the British commander of the Canadian units, or the Canadian commander, if you prefer, argued that Louis Riel was sane. And Louis Riel argued that he was sane. And there was a pretty good case to be made that he wasn't. And the case to be made that he wasn't is resplendent in his journals. Because it's very clear he had a bit of a messiah complex going on. Oh, yeah. yeah and, and he talks about leading his people to the promised land and milk and honey. And, and when you read all of this, it's, oh, my gosh. You know, like, you, 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 if you look at the, the whole person, he's a very complex figure. And this is what makes him controversial in Canadian history. 
And then, of course, he's arguing that he's sane. His best defense would have been to say, well, you know, I'm I'm insane, therefore I'm not going to get the death penalty, and then I can maybe come back and, and work on this another time when I get better. Yes. But that isn't the way he played it. He, he was extremely eloquent. He gave a, a series of presentations and speeches when he was being tried which uh, were, were very persuasive. The, the, the wording, of course, remains and it's accessible out there of, of what he said in his trial. And yet, when, when it came down to whether or not he was sane or insane, the, the prosecution wanted him to be sane because then they could execute him. He wanted to be seen as sane so he would be taken credibly. Right, and what would have saved his life is if if his journals had been put into evidence, and if he had uh, taken the advice of his lawyer, which has said, "We've got to make you, we're going to save your life. You have to be crazy." Yes, and he wouldn't take that path, which uh, it, it it showed either but it either showed great courage or it showed that he was crazy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, and maybe it's a combination of both. Yeah, because all all people of greatness tend to have things about them that are not as uh, perfect as we would sometimes want to think. And Louis Riel uh, can rightly be credited with the formation of Manitoba, making tremendous strides for Métis people and Métis people's rights. He directly led to uh, more attention being paid for that, although the Métis ended up scattering across the West as a result of the influx of, of uh, peoples claiming up land grants and everything. But you, you will find Métis people throughout Canada and the, and the United States who originate from that Red River settlement in Manitoba and Louis Riel's rebellions. Yes. And during this time, too, we had... A great chief come to Canada, a sitting bull. Sitting bull. You know, and he had some things to do with this. He and Poundmaker. Yes. And, uh, Red Cloud. Red Cloud, yes. And there's a painting of the surrender of, of, uh, Poundmaker. And he has, it's very, very, uh, it's probably reasonably accurate, but it very much shows the, the different ways in which the different groups would have perceived themselves in those times. You have the native peoples all standing, and you have uh, Sitting Bull and Poundmaker and Red Cloud, and the people seated, Middleton yep. in his little chair with his big white puffy mustache <laughs> and his blue uniform, and uh, the the deals that are being made to try to bring back some peace and stability, which is what the army was supposed to do. And I mean, and I go back to Gabriel Dumont and his his very capable military actions at places like Batoche and, and so on. The, the Métis win a lot of the battles. They just lose the war. Yes, and the they big lo- war. They lose the big fight at the end. Yeah. And they're, they're, they can be credited with that because of, there was a fair bit of ineptness on the part of the Canadian troops. Uh, I'm Colonel Otter, who went on to great things later on, uh, learned his lessons the hard way at Cutknife Ridge. Uh, and, you know, he, the, the Métis let them escape. The, 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 and the and the and the native contingent let them escape, and it's probably a wise thing that they did that because that probably mitigated some of the things that would have happened afterwards. Yes, but it it was a very sad state that a lot of these chiefs were then arrested and then put into cells. And when you're a person who lives outdoors most of your life, 
And I mean, I, I, I love the outdoors myself. I love to get outside. I love to breathe fresh air. I love to clear the smell of money that Prince George is renowned for, <laughs> yeah. uh, from my nostrils. And then I come back to Prince George and I, I don't know who was operating the steam plant on Sunday, but my gosh, uh, it, it was, it, it was, something horrible to be contained into these little cells by these these people and i think that that directly resulted in the deaths of many of them because they just had no more freedom and you take away somebody's freedom that's what happens exactly so we'll talk more about the imprisonment and what happened at the end with louis right after we're supposed to be going to a break and we'll talk more perfect Tune in to Modern Jazz Today. A weekly show that focuses on today's jazz improvisers and creators, cutting their teeth and cutting the edge of sound. Join us as we explore what's new, what's groundbreaking, and where it's happening. Right here and only here on Modern Jazz Today. Monday nights at 7 here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. The Prince George Community Foundation Spring Grant Intake is now open. Eligible charities in Prince George can still apply for up to $10,000 in grant funding. Applications for smaller grassroots projects of $10,000 and under have an online submission deadline of Wednesday, March 15th. Interested charities can review the grant guidelines and other spring 2023 grant intake details on the Prince George Community Foundation's website at pgcf.ca. The Teen Art Showcase is on display and runs until March 31st at your Prince George Public Library. Stop by the library to check out the latest submissions from budding local creative talents. The showcase will conclude with an awards reception at the library on Saturday, April 1st from 1 to 2. For more information, email lredpath at studio2880.com. That's Teen Art Showcase 2023 on display until March 31st at your Prince George Public Library. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, periods of light snow ending this afternoon, then mainly cloudy, wind up to 15K, a high of minus 9 with a wind chill to minus 20. Tonight, mainly cloudy with fog patches developing, a 60% chance of light snow overnight, wind continuing, a low of minus 13 with a wind chill to minus 16. On Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud, wind from the north at 20 in the afternoon, a high of minus 2 with an afternoon wind chill to minus 8. You're listening to Community Echoes with Phyllis Warren on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Hi, and we're back again with Sheldon Clare. So we were talking about, um, you know, some of the natives being jailed and everything and how their demise quickly followed their imprisonment. But at this time, too, with uh, Rial... We are learning his fight and everything else, and they're trying to fight for his life. And he decided that his defense was not the correct way. He did not want to see himself as being a mentally ill person. Exactly. And I mean... there's there's all sorts of you know crazy people never think they're crazy but nonetheless sane people don't think they're crazy usually either. <laughs> yeah yeah so we're on a fine line there and you know that's right and and the the whole, the whole thing with with Riel is initially he's he's viewed as a as a as a traitor and that's the that's the pervasive view for most of the first part of the the, the 20th century is 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 that uh however the 
accomplishments of what happened to force the creation of Manitoba as a province, Assiniboia initially, then Manitoba, and the the uh, attention that it brought to the plight of the Métis people and the Native people in in the region as well have also now been recognized as something to be uh, praised and be they're laudatory. They're, they're important aspects of Canadian history. And when you look at the history as an all-encompassing thing, you have to look at that and include the, the, the things which are seen in one way and the other way. Because Louis Riel remains a controversial figure. He, he, he is seen as a traitor by some. He is seen as a hero by others. He right. is... He is not a simple man. He is he is a complex person, and uh, his accomplishments are rightly lauded to to say that this is someone who mattered. This is someone who made a difference. Yes, and, and that I think is the legacy that everybody should ascribe to Louis, to Louis Riel is that he made a difference. Yes, and not all of us. Uh, can claim that. Like we all try, I think. I think all, and some are more or less successful. Louis Riel was a person who saw a problem, identified the problem, worked on the problem, was selected by his people as a leader, and did the best he could to try to deal with it. Yes. And at the end of his trial, he was naturally found guilty. He was found guilty. He was sentenced to die by hanging. Yeah. And he was hanged in Winnipeg, and, and he, uh, was seen as a martyr, particularly in, in, in the Canada East, Quebec, uh, French Canada saw him as a martyr. He was, he was, uh, very much, uh, and it was, it, rep- it represented an early division in Canada, really, the whole treatment of Riel and the, the situation with the Metis. It, it represented the, the divisions between French and English. It de- represented divisions between Roman Catholic and Protestant. And it, I think, foreshadows some of the same issues and difficulties that Canadians face even to this day. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, you know, one summer we were on a history buff thing, me and my husband, so we drag Fantastic. our kids. Yeah, we drive across, you know, to uh, Winnipeg, and we hunt down the grave of Louis Riel and... Red Cloud. Fabulous. You know, Fabulous. because I figured that our children should know, right? Yep. You hear bits and pieces of this when you're in school, but when you actually see these headstones, it sinks in. We are fellow travelers on the view that one must walk the ground to truly understand history. Yes. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I've done much the same with my own family uh, in traveling uh, battlefield sites uh, in Europe, going to the Somme, looking at Verdun, lo- looking at Normandy, Dieppe, uh, Hill 70, the yeah. Ivimi Ridge, all of these places which are hallmarks of Canadian history, and, and, and seeing those graves. And it really brings it home like no book can. Yes, and you see, I was brought up that I was sent away every summer to Nova Scotia. My sister was in the armed forces, so her and her husband would take me to all these little forts of important, you know, and we would spend a day there, you know, but my best time was at Peggy's Cove. For some odd reason, I just loved sitting on the rocks hearing the waves hit. And, yeah. you know, it had nothing to do with history. So I kind of knew what my kids felt when I drugged them to Winnipeg. Yes. <laughs> you know, um, okay, yeah, that's great. But <laughs> they appreciate it more later. That's because when they want a reference point, 
uh, when they're talking about this with their friends and it comes up in conversation, they can sit there and go, well, I, I've actually been to Louis Riel's grave. I've been to Winnipeg. I've, I've seen where Red Cloud is, is, is buried. I, I know a little bit about this history. And, yes. And I don't think any of us can ever know all of it. And I think that, that the, the whole thing about taking history, studying history at college and university is about trying to make sense of the past. And mm-hmm. trying to understand why things happened the way they did and trying to avoid getting too judgmental about it. And that's a hard, hard thing because we tend to look at the past with our lenses of today and place our own battles and, and judgments upon that. And I'm not sure that's always the right approach. Yes. And, you know, history is there to show us how we have arrived here today. Exactly. We, we don't know how we got here unless we understand what the path to get here was like. Yes. If we don't understand that journey, it, it does not make it easy to understand the result. Yes. And we can't rewrite history. Nope. What has happened has happened. We can only study it. Well, we, we can study it, and I've, we have this thing called revisionism, in which people do rewrite history. <laughs> uh, historians historians are famous for uh, doing that. You, you you train grad students, and they promptly write books that uh, denigrate everything you ever taught them. Uh, however, it, it's certainly the case that history has value. Studying history has a lot of value, and if we don't study our history, if we don't learn from our history, we are going to be not considering the problems and situations which caused difficulties in the past and then can do the same again in the future. So it's important to have a broad understanding of of where we've been. Right. You know, and and that's what I mean. And we need to get our kids out there to experience these things. Absolutely. You know, uh, a good old summer trip. Let's plan it. We're going to go see here, here, here. You know, like in my family, it was um, Frank Slide. Oh. Head smashed in Buffalo oh, jump. jump. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Tyrell Museum. The Royal Tyrell Museum. My, my, my family comes from the Drumheller oh. uh, Calgary area. I, uh, my, my dad's family. We have had a lot of relatives of the Drumheller area who work, worked the coal face right. down there. And, uh, I, you know, it was funny. I, we were, you know, we were way far away from Louis Riel right now, but I, I remember go to going there on a family trip and showing everybody the railway sidings or the railway crossings because the tracks are gone except for where they cross each road. And the reason for that is the railway still owns the land right. as long as they maintain the crossings. Yes. Even though the rails are long gone. Yes. Yes. And you see, and, and that's just it. We still see that, you know, and it brings the history and we can talk about it to our children. Yes. And, you know, this is what we have done in our family is to take them, to show them this is real. It, it, it's, yeah, real is definitely real. Mm -hmm, Exactly. (laughs) And on that note, thank you very much for coming in and talking to me. And I hope we can do it again. Yeah, it was great fun. It was. It was really great fun. And um, I'm hoping that we have another topic that I can get you in and and we can chat about the history again. So thank you, Sheldon. You're most welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. And you know what, guys? We're at the end of the show because... 
of this month, we're only going to be doing from 1 to one thirty. So next week, I'll be back again at 1. And today we are going to finish off today's show with two editions of the Francophone podcast. See you. 25 years of Rendezvous de la Francophonie. It's time to celebrate. Welcome to the Franco Podcast. Hello, my name is Catherine Fisher, and I had the pleasure of interviewing six bilingual Canadians for this podcast. In this episode, I speak to Juno Award-winning singer-songwriter Andrea Lindsay. Good morning, Andrea. You grew up speaking English, but you sing mostly in French. Why? Well, I grew up in Guelph in Ontario and in a completely Anglophone environment. I actually went to France when I was 18, and the more I learned, the more I fell in love with the, the language. And it's really, I think, so the word that comes to mind is passion. I have a passion for music, and I felt that same sort of spark for French, for learning the French language, uh, the poetry of the language, also the, the adventure of learning, of learning the new language and learning the French language. It all just really lit up my, my brain in the way that music did. And it, in that way, I can't quite describe, which is just that spark, that spark. Who knows why some things just leave us neutral and then other things just really seem to light us up. And it did that for me. So I decided to combine French and music, my two passions, and I, I haven't really looked back. Were you already passionate about about music at the time that you went to France? Yes, always. I, I grew up with just sort of with an ear to the, at the when I was a four-year-old, this will date me, but when I was four, the, the, <clears throat> the stereo was an actual piece of furniture. So, I mean, yeah. it was basically the same height as me, and I would just put my head to the speakers and my mom would listen to a lot of 45 and uh, just I grew up with just music and I just always remember being there and then the stereo had a little microphone to plug in and just always always gravitating towards it and interested in it and in choirs and yeah just always gravitating towards it in the same way that I saw with French that I just seemed to naturally go towards it and just keep coming back keep returning. What kind of 45s did your mom have? Oh my goodness. We had the Beatles. We had a whole bunch of stuff too that, like the Partridge family, you name it really. It was also, some of the stuff wasn't even, you know, top 40. It would be sort of the B sides. They were sort of obscure. We had, oh my goodness. Well, of course, Elvis, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, all of those. But we also had Joni Mitchell and the Guess Who and all sorts of, all sorts of things, very oldies. So my mom basically made jukeboxes out of us. We, well, we're three, we're three girls and music from the fifties, sixties and seventies. And then of course the eighties, we were living in the eighties. We were children of the eighties. So those are those, the decades that I really I really know the music too, know a lot of the words and just really, I think it influences my music, just mm. all of those mm-hmm. bands and sounds and yeah, the culture of it. Can you think of a particular moment in your life when you realized you'd become fluent in French and, and how did that feel? Ooh, I don't, I don't know if I, there was ever a moment. Hmm, well, actually, yeah, there was a, a fun moment when I was in university and I, I switched my courses to French when I came back from France. I, I got a waiver and I switched my courses. 
and I was in this French literature class, and this one girl, she did a project on a show called Passepartout, and we, me and my sisters, especially my, my eldest sister, Pamela, she said, you know, maybe if we watch this show every day, we'll, we'll learn French, and we just, it, it looks so great, and we knew it was, a, it is a great show, and Anyway, this girl did an exposition, an expose on what she grew up with, and it was that show. We called it that show, which was, of course, Pascatu. And I remember getting choked up. I'm getting choked up talking about it. <laughs> I remember getting choked up because I was 23 at the time, and I understood that show she put in, and, and it was an old VHS of would have been around the, the same episodes that we must have seen and just didn't understand. And here I am sitting there, and I'm understanding that show. I told my sisters, I said, I understood that show today. And I, yes, there was something there. I still had a lot of work to do, um, but I, I remember thinking, this is this is possible. I'm making progress. <laughs> I I understand that you studied to be a translator. Have you worked in that field? Yes, I have. I used to work at CGI, so that's a sort of a computer. Um, uh, oh my goodness, it's sort of a computer outsourcing computer technology. I was obviously not on the computer end, the way I'm talking, but uh, yes, I, I translated the resumes I did. I've done, uh, yes, quite a few more technical things, and then I just decided to put all of my energy into to music. So I have put translation aside, but I still do translations from time to time, uh, for friends or, you know, for my friend Dave, Dave Richard, he has a magazine en ligne, it's an architecture magazine, and every every once in a while it's kind of fun to go back and to, to flex that muscle, but I'm, I'm pretty much just doing music now. Has your concept of being bilingual changed over time? Oh, that's, yes, you know what, it has. I think my concept of being bilingual has changed over time because I, the more I live in the language, which my, my partner is Francophone, he doesn't really speak a lot of English, and my our son, our six-year-old son, is completely bilingual. I see that it's also being bicultural, that you're you're... Yes, you're speaking another language, but you're also, it's just like you're on your, another radio channel. It's, it's another version of yourself, and each language has a philosophy and, and a culture behind it. And I, I see that with, uh, do you know that singer, Daniel Lavois? Mm-hmm. Um, he's a wonderful artist, and he's francophone from the west of Canada. I think he's from Winnipeg. But I just absolutely, we speak sometimes in both French and in English when we do meet up. And I remember thinking, it's, it's bicultural. It's not just bilingual. It's, yeah, so there's a sense of, of culture and philosophy that is behind each language and each language within the region you're speaking. I mean, even in English or in any language, you have a certain, we have certain words, a certain idiomatic expressions that we might use in one region more than another. And yeah, it, it really opened me up to that, to see that our language, I don't want to say dictates, but encourages the way we may even see the world, the way we may perceive the world. What do you love about being bilingual? Oh my goodness. I just feel, again, and that, that would tie into the last question, I just feel like it opens me up to ha- have a, a, a bigger palette to express myself. It's really fun being with bilingual friends. We just sort of switch back and forth. And 
you can use sort of yeah more of your your palette and there are just things that you think oh I I can only say this in English I don't know how you would say this in French and and vice versa and uh, so it's just been a lot of fun also I've just I feel like a I feel sort of like a, a child too like it allows me to be sort of I always call it Andrea in Wonderland or Andrea au Pays des Merveilles just that idea that I can also learn as an adult and sort of give myself that that room to play and not be I think in English I tend to put more pressure on myself to speak properly and speak like an adult and I'm allowed sort of or I've allowed myself to, to make mistakes in French and keep going I, I think that's also had an impact on other areas of my life where you think, well, you're learning. You're, you know, you want to try to learn the piano, which I do not play, by the way. Wish I did, but I'll take lessons and I'll, I'll progress. And I think it just helps you just see yourself. I think as a always a, an evolving and a learning organism, <laughs> even later in life. You know, is there anything that feels a bit difficult about being bilingual? Oh my goodness. When I wake up and I, I haven't had my coffee and then the phone rings and it's in French, that's, that's never really a pleasant experience. And I do, as I mentioned, live in French with my partner and it can be quite entertaining. There can be funny little things that just a, a lack of communication that later we break it down. And I mean, we're talking just as an example. In French, they call the garbage bags green bags. They sac there. But even if they're not green. So I was like, wow, well, he's looking for these green bags. I'm looking for these green bags. I can't find them. And then he's like, oh, no, no, no. I just mean a garbage bag. And I mean, all those tiny details can be a challenge where it is just easier for me in English. I did start learning French at 18. So my brain was a fully developed young, but young adult brain. And I do see that sometimes I... I struggle. It can be frustrating and it just depends on the day, on my level of patience. So there's some, there are some days that I, I still, I still get tired and it'll be interesting as my son gets older. <laughs> you know, he starts, I don't know, developing his French and he'll, he'll, he'll teach me some things, but uh, I, I learn every day. And so some days are good days and some days I, I don't feel like learning. So yeah, it really depends. <laughs> So you were the uh, RVF spokesperson in 2011. What did that mean to you at that time? Oh, it was such an honor. I think as an Anglophone that's come in from a complete other culture and, and had such a desire to, to learn and to belong to the community, it's just really touching to me. And I have to say I was really impressed by the sense of community that I felt from that experience and the sense of community in the francophone community, francophonie uh, at large. I think when you're you're driven to protect and preserve your language and your culture, I think it does bring people together. And I, I just felt honored to be a, a small part of that, that, you know, to be welcomed in. I feel honored to be a sort of a adopted in and sort of taken into the fold a little bit, you know, and to get to know people in their language. That, that's something else that's really, really nice. I've, I've met Francophones when I did not speak French, and I lived in Sudbury for a year, and I didn't speak French at the time. And it was just nice to go back and to be able to meet them in their language. So all of that's just been such an honor. Do you have any advice for somebody that's learning French? 
Oh, definitely. I think my biggest thing was just be patient with yourself and, and allow yourself to make mistakes. Don't don't be too hard on yourself. The people that inspired me the most when I saw them learning English were the people that just went for it. And it's okay. It's, it's not your first language. It's your, you're not being judged and, you know, you can't speak or something. And I think that was my biggest roadblock was just allowing myself to make mistakes and make mistakes in front of people. When I was in France, I got lonely enough that I just finally, finally just started doing that. And that's when I started making progress. It's just allowing myself to not just drop the perfection of facts where you just, you, you absolutely protect yourself and you don't learn very much, you know, just let yourself go. And it's okay if you don't speak perfectly. (laughs) That's wonderful advice. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for making yourself available. Oh, well, you're welcome. It was great talking to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Rendezvous de la Francophonie's Franco podcast. In this episode, you heard from Juno Award-winning singer-songwriter Andrea Lindsay. Life Before the Pulp Mills, from your Council of Seniors, is a unique look at the early years of Prince George, the Goat Island Swimming Hole and Pier, the Old Army Hospital, and making do during World War II. It's a look back using the words of past Prince George residents, such as the Peckhams, Olingers, Kirschkeys, and others. Our city in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s comes alive for just $20. Life Before the Pulp Mills. Available at the new Council of Seniors Resource Center, 1330 Fifth Avenue. Learn how to access long-term care and factors to consider when planning a move March 21st with the Alzheimer's Society of BC. Considering the transition to long-term care is an in-person education session taking place at their resource center on Victoria Street. To register or for more information, call the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033. Considering the transition to long-term care, Tuesday, March 21st from 1 to 3 at the Alzheimer's Society of BC Resource Center, 1811 Victoria Street. If you're a member of the LGBTQIA 25-plus community, there's a special games night for you at the Prince George Public Library. On Thursday, come down to the Bob Harkins branch between 6 and 7.30 and play Super Mario Kart or try out a new video game. This is a free drop-in event and allies are welcome. That's a queer games night at the Downtown Public Library, Thursday from 6 to 7.30. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, mainly cloudy, wind up to 15K, a high of minus 9 with a wind chill to minus 13. Tonight, mainly cloudy with fog patch developing, a 60% chance of light snow overnight, wind continuing, a low of minus 13 with a wind chill to minus 16. On Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud, wind from the north at 20 in the afternoon, a high of minus 2 with an afternoon wind chill to minus 8. This is Community Echoes on 93.1 CFIS-FM with Phyllis Warren. 25 years of Rendezvous de la Francophonie. It's time to celebrate. Welcome to the Franco Podcast. Hello, my name is Catherine Fisher, and I had the pleasure of interviewing six bilingual Canadians for this podcast. In this episode, I speak to Alex Friedman, Executive Director of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I want to start by asking you, what languages did you speak as a child? 
So I was raised in English, but I attended a entirely French public school in London, Ontario, from kindergarten to grade six. And my mother speaks five languages. So there was always kind of a plethora of different languages. She speaks German, Russian, Sherber, Croatian, French, and English. So my world has always been filled with the wonderful sounds of language. Uh, how about your father? My father's an American who went to school at the Sorbonne. So he also speaks French, but with a very uniquely American accent. So did you, did you folks speak French at all at home? We didn't, actually. We didn't speak French much at home at all, other than when I was doing homework for, for French school. In hindsight, it's, it's a bit of a disappointment because once I got out of French school, I found myself better capable to speak French than the public system in Ontario. And so it was very discouraging as a student. And I actually got out of French classes entirely because I felt I could teach the teacher. So that there was no French in the home then caused me for a number of years to not speak French at all until I went to work in Montreal as a journalist. And believe me, when you try to interview the Silpé Quebec in English, it doesn't go very well. So there was a relearning curve, which, which was unfortunate, but there we are. How has your concept of being bilingual changed over time? It's, it's, it's just part of the fabric of my life. I've always understood that I've been able to do it. What I see more, I think, is as a leader and uh, as somebody who works in Ottawa, I have a lot of really talented people I'd love to be able to hire in different capacities. But if they can't do it in both languages, regardless of how qualified they are, there's really not much room for me to be able to bring them into the door. And so my perception as I've grown in my life is that the importance of being able to speak both languages is just so much more important. And I've raised both of my children in Quebec, and they go to a Francophone school. And, and in our household, my wife speaks in French to the kids, and I speak in English to the kids. So we've really kind of doubled down on our position on this and our desire to ensure that the next generation is, is better equipped. Yeah, I wish I'd done a little more French in school, because I mean, French is a bit scant. <laughs> And it's, and it's daunting, right? And even for me, when I have conversations in French, if I have to present at a board meeting in French, no, I've done this for years, but it's daunting. It's not my natural space, and my head doesn't think in French. So on the topic of the Community Radio Fund of Canada, so you're the ED, but tell me more about what the fund does. So the fund provides support for community campus and Indigenous radio stations across the country. And so we... Working with commercial broadcasters in the federal government, seek out new lines of funding and new ways of providing support for this large swath of broadcasters who, you know, broadcast programming in as many as 65 different languages. Many of our stations are either Anglophone stations in Quebec or Francophone stations in places like Peace River, Alberta. And so a lot of what we do is respond to these stations, in particular do is respond to the needs of those communities. And... Because radio has this unique ability to convey the sound and texture of language, it has an intrinsic role in the preservation and protection of language. The more we are able to hear the sound and the regional dialects, because you know, if you're a French speaker in New Brunswick, the French is vastly different from the French in Quebec. So French in Canada in itself is not homogenous. And so what we do is provide an opportunity in all these languages 
for those sounds to be broadcast and distributed to those who want to engage with Mm-hmm. That must be amazing for you to have a, a sort of an overview of what all of the stations in Canada are doing. Well, and every time we yeah. get to a conference, either through the NCRA or otherwise, I'm sitting around with these people and, and, and I hear this regularly. Yeah, it's really quite something. And, and I think that even, you know, Anglophone stations are aware of and will broadcast programming in French in their schedule. No community in Canada is strictly one language or the other. So for people that might not be familiar with community radio, can you sort of sketch out what community radio is about? So community radio is it's a broadcasting undertaking that is based in the community. All the stations are not-for-profit. All of the stations are run by community boards. By and large, they're supported by a network of volunteers that come from the communities that they serve. So community radio then has a unique way of reflecting their own community back to others. Uh, community radio is on the ground with local news and information. Community radio are the first place, it's the first place we hear emerging Canadian artists. Community radio is the bedrock of what I like to call the Canadian voice. They're the stations who believe firmly in the mission and not so much in the profit. It's about what these stations do and not how they return investments to shareholders. And so it's a fundamental difference in how we approach communicating. And and how is community radio different from, say, the CBC? So the CBC, for many, many years, has focused primarily on hubs and tends, they still have the funding to be able to be in the local communities. You know, the journalists, for example, in Newfoundland and St. John. Try to get out to Sydney and you'll never see a CBC journalist unless there's a major incident. And so the CBC, I'm not knocking the CBC, does a remarkable job as a monolithic national broadcaster. But they don't have that individual community touch. They don't walk out of their studios in Sydney and into the grocery store with their listener. So the CBC does a wonderful job of being this massive thing, but doesn't do a great job of being on the ground. And the other piece is, because of the way they've structured themselves, and I speak to this with some authority as a 15-year veteran of the CBC, there are a few of us who were able to transition over linguistic lines, but there's not a many of them. And the CBC, for lack of a better term, I hate it, but tends to be very siloed linguistically. And there's no merging or sharing. When I think about community radio, I think of a place where from one hour to the next, you can be hearing a broadcast in Farsi about the plight of Iranian women and a way of interpreting Iranian news for Canadian Iranians. The next hour, you can jump immediately to a classical music programming and finally land in a Caribbean soca experience at the end of the night. And it, it's that variety, because as I say, we're not a homogenous, we're not just one thing in any Canadian community. So community radio compared to the CBC has a unique ability to really reflect the texture and tone of those communities that they serve, as opposed to the province of Ontario. Obviously, there's been a lot of changes. Radio, some people are saying, is less relevant than it used to be. How do you find community radio stations are changing? So first of all, I would say... I would disagree with that point. We've recently seen studies suggesting that Canadians still engage with audio programming, you know, significantly more with AM and FM. And when I say significantly for more, you know, we're talking about 39% of Canadians still get audio programming on AM and FM broadcast. 
and uh, and the next best competitor is YouTube at about 14%. So I would first of all say that that AM FM still plays a critical role in, in connecting Canadians. The way community radios have a Embraced digital, though, has been a remarkable transformation. And community radio, while we remain, and I think uniquely in terms of community, public, and commercial broadcasters, will need to remain on the towers because we broadcast to communities that don't have, in some case, digital connections. Only 24% of Canada's Indigenous communities have access to high-speed internet. So when it comes to connecting those communities, we need to be on the broadcast tower. However, we've also, and we've seen this time and again, embracing live streaming, embracing new ways of amplifying the signal because there's a real desire for that community radio content. It's just so difficult on shoestring budgets to create the platforms and the different venues for that to get out. But as always, community radio is creative and passionate and develops those ways even in a, even with a lack of funding to be able to do it, which is why our fund has recently pivoted some of what we do to really promote the transition to digital in some way. But I think community radio will have to live with a foot in both worlds for many, many years to come. I remember 25 years ago in journalism school hearing about the imminent death of radio. And here we are today still as a dominant medium. Do you want to highlight a I don't know, two or three stations in Canada and the interesting and innovative things that they've done with money given by the fund? Oh, oh boy, I might get in some trouble here because, because of course, we love all of the projects that are out there. But um, well, let, me, let, let me think of a few. So, uh, you know, one of the things we support is, is local journalism. Um, and so we're really proud to be able to provide salaries and funding for as many as 41 stations across Canada to put journalists in the news desert. I think that's been one of the most amazing projects we've been involved with. As a former journalist, and as I watched the decline of quality information, to be able to contribute to that dialogue and to provide support for stations to contribute to that dialogue has been just remarkable. I'll point to the station up in Dawson City um, during the pandemic that was running radio plays. Artists were not able to get into theaters to be able to produce the place. But we needed more than ever to be able to connect with a cultural expression and an expression of the communities in which we live. And so to be able to use some funding to create radio plays with these artists and to be able to create art on the radio was this incredibly, this is a really incredible way uh, of engaging with some of those elements. And so again, I could go on and on and on, but those are a couple of programs where I think the funding we provide, and it's a great example of the funding we provide, has made a material difference, not just for the stations, right? When we support the station, we support the communities. 2023 is the Rendezvous de la Francophonie's 25th anniversary. What does, what's, what does the Francophonie mean to you, and what does the Rendezvous de la Francophonie's month celebration of the Francophonie mean to you? It means... It means that we can shine a spotlight on the beauty that is French in Canada. Um, I mean, I'll ask the question I often ask about one month. Why just one month? Why don't we spend more time than that? But when we have a month like this, when we can focus on this, when we can tell these stories, when we can give non-Francophones the ability to relate with the experiences of Francophones, this was really powerful moment of connection. One of the challenges in society 
is a lack of understanding of what's happening on the other side of your hedge. This gives English Canada an ability to see across the hedge, to understand why Francophones are so passionate about protecting the language, why a province like Quebec has created an entire star system to promote its own arts and culture and has done so in a fashion that has elevated that language and the arts and culture of that language to a level that nobody has seen in any other province in Canada. And yet, if you sit in Alberta, you don't understand this. And so la francophonie, or celebration de la francophonie, is really this incredible portal to be able to bridge that and to break down the barriers that we often find in terms of common understanding. I hear it all the time from people across this country. You know, my wife and I'll say, we were in a, in a coffee shop in Winnipeg and we were speaking French to one another and somebody came up to us and said, hey, I want you to speak Canadian. That person needs to hear and understand why we're so proud to speak French and why we both feel, and so many of us feel, that speaking French is speaking Canadian. Well, I, I very much appreciate your, your time and your insight. Well, it's been a pleasure. Merci beaucoup pour l'opportunité, puis uh, vive la France. Thanks for tuning into the Rendezvous de la Francophonie's Franco podcast. In this episode, you heard from Alex Friedman, Executive Director of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. You've been listening to Community Echoes on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Community Echoes was produced by Phyllis Warren with technical producer Steve Smith. If you have any suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. Broadcasting at 93.1 on the FM dial, this is CFISFM Prince George, proudly sponsored by local businesses like Timberline Footfitters on Victoria next to Wendy.